This is Power in Practice. The law of gravity is nonsense. No such law exists. If I think I float, if you think I float, then it happens. It's time to get down to business. All of the realities of BDSM in practice. Welcome to Power in Practice. You're listening to Episode 8, Part 1, Creating a Structure by Flag, recorded live during a meeting in New York City. Worse is the idea that seems even more widespread, that in order to be formal, I have to make someone do something silly. I haven't put enough raised pinky in my service instructions. I haven't capitalized enough or told someone that they will obey enough. Formality seems to be a catch-all for certain sorts of insecurity and certain sorts of, um, not even insecurity. When I first started out, I didn't know what the hell to do. And I felt very, very nervous that someone was going to figure that out. I mean, I'm supposed to be a dominant. I'm supposed to be in charge. And look at these dominants around me. They've got phone books full of rules, and they all seem to know exactly what they're doing, and by God, they're masterful. And if I'm not masterful, how can I compete? And if I can't compete, I might as well go home. So, first things first. If I don't have a phone book full of rules, maybe I ought to make some up, which I promptly did. I'll just chalk that up to a learning experience. It didn't work out exactly the way I was hoping. Not because the rules themselves... I put some thought into the rules, and i got to tell you, the rules I imposed were rules I liked. And for the most part, although I, uh, I found out the hard way about rule number one I'm going to get to, for the most part, I kept to them. Rule number one is never create a rule you're not going to enforce. Never. It is poison. And I'll get to why in a little while. But one of the other forms of poison is, in fact, enforcing all your rules. Because I had written so many rules and had such an imposing little phone book of rules that I could wave around and had a manual I could put in front of people and go, learn this or wash this, or whatever, that I really wasn't relating to the people anymore. They were relating to the document, I was relating to the document, and we all went about our lives. But I actually put a chokehold on my own interaction with the people beneath me. This, in the end, did not turn out to be what I wanted, oddly enough. So, yeah, complex fantasies and ritual often get in the way, and they are often mistaken for protocol. We're going to try and put those last because in some ways those are the easiest things because rituals are most often the things we think about, the trappings, the bells and whistles that we think would be really hot. It would be really cool if. And and that's great and there is room for that. But not when you're getting down to what makes a structure work, group or otherwise. So we're going to start with the idea of contracts. I made enough of these, you can take them home. This is a bit out of date, but you know that's good because it'll give you a reason to buy the book when it comes out because I've got all kinds of new stuff. But uh, we're going to start with contracts. 
a lot of the more formalized relationship, relationship structures, I know Jack uses a contract, I know Sir C uses a contract, and those are the two people in my mind who are the examples of doing formal right. So I'm going to stick with them pretty often. I'm not going to give a step-by-step -step on how to write your contract, or more to the point, what to put in your contract, but I will give a step-by-step -step on what you might want to include and how you might want to think about it. Because this document, if you write a contract, there's only two purposes for a contract. One is it gets somebody hot, somebody wet, it's masturbation fodder, sign it and forget it. I'm not dealing with that kind of contract. Two is it's an arbiter. It is the ultimate decision maker for conflicts because you've already committed to what can and cannot be done where rights begin, where rights end, and where this stops and starts. That's the one we're going to deal with. First rule, no flowery language. If you are writing a contract because it is making you hot and it sounds good, or this is what you think a slave contract is supposed to look like, put down the pen, step away from the word processor, go get some air. Sadly, if you're going to write a contract, it should look as dull and unexciting as a legal document straight from the IRS. Do not distract yourself with the hotness. You can have fun later. This is business. So it's not about things being pretty. It's not about things being romantic. It is about things being clear and about your language being clear. Because if you leave room for vagary, when you are looking to this, either internally or between you and your people, looking for answers, and it doesn't give you any answers, you're up shit's creek. You're also avoiding abstracts for the same reason. You're avoiding hyperbole. You're avoiding forever. You can say for life, but forever is not going to help you. Looks good. Not terribly enforceable, though. It's about responsibilities, rights, privileges, and obligations. Make every attempt to keep your document focused on these things. Circe's rule, when you are addressing limits, don't always focus on what various parties can't live with. Also, keep in mind what they cannot live without. Because if that's not in there, in the end, when push comes to shove, you have no right to expect it. So keep it in mind. Don't debase the agreement on emotional conditions. As concrete as they feel, they come and go. I love you forever has no part in one of these. You want to serve because you want to serve. You want to own because you want to own. Leave it at that. It's a good enough reason. You don't need any other reason than simply desiring it. But when you put it that way, it's much easier to get a realistic grip on what kind of time you're willing to commit to this and what part of your life you're willing to commit to this. The moment you start talking about love, in our culture, there's a social obligation to give more. I can't say, well, I love you, and that's fine, but I'm still only willing to give you two hours a week. See, you sh there shouldn't be any reason for anyone to giggle at that. But there is, because it seems inherently contradictory. It creates a subtle pressure. I love you, but. So drop love completely, and just say, I can only give two hours a week. 
it's much easier to keep to the facts that way. It's a forest in the trees thing. The rules, the rituals, the protocols, none of that is what you are. And that means in order to keep what you are, you may have to adjust the contract. If the contract is more important than you are, you've probably got a problem. I'm not saying immediately drop the contract the first time there's a conflict, but I'm saying if there is an irreconcilable conflict, you are going to have to decide what is more important, the relationship or the contract. Now, normally, I'm all for advocating on the side of dominance over love, and I still am. But the contract is not dominance. The contract is an agreement, nothing more. And if agreement has to be abridged, so be it. Just make sure that in the end, that you, as the dominant, are satisfied with the agreements you've made. Because let me tell you, if you can't abridge this thing, and you as the dominant aren't happy with it, as I did to myself, and you don't feel that you have the right to change it, because you're serving the contract instead of the contract serving you, well, then you're just fucked. So, contracts have pitfalls. And I'm not going to get too far into contracts. We could do a whole thing on contracts. I bring up contracts because formal orders, much like Jack's, often have written agreements. You should look at what you're reading. You should look carefully at what you're writing. And you should think about it. And essentially, my big advice on all contracts is trim the fat. Just the facts, ma'am. Absolute bare bones language, absolute bare bones information. Least amount of words, most amount of information. Soul Hunter's Law. Stick to it. Okay. Formal and poly and family structures have an interesting inherent pitfall when you're dealing with poly. Because many people are tempted to start putting their rituals and protocols on paper, especially if they are in a what they consider to be a formal relationship, a formal structure, one with a contract. It makes perfect sense then to start putting these things that you want on paper. How many people here are in polystructures? Show of hands. How many people are here are in leather families, polystructures, have more than one servant, have more than one dominant? Okay, we've got a couple of hands. How many, out of those, how many people are on top of those structures? Okay, we got a couple. Of, of, of those of you who are on top, how many of you and your people all want the same thing? How many of them would all thrive if they were treated exactly the same? And thus goes the fantasy of the Robert Palmer girls standing behind me. It just doesn't seem to work that way. So, if we stick to the idea of only write down what you can't live without, suddenly that becomes less of a problem. Because if I write down every little thing that I like because I'm in a single relationship, and then I bring in a second and then take that same contract and put it in front of them, odds are good it's not going to function as well. 
It's not going to function as well as a document because it's not going to produce the results that you want. On the other hand, if I write a whole new contract for each new person, does anyone here know what that's going to invite? How come she doesn't have to do that? How come I don't get to do that? Wow, hers is two lines longer. <laughs> oh, go to hell, all of you. So what you want is the absolute minimum that you would expect, the things that you cannot live without from each person. If it is damned important to you that the people under you address you as sir, then you put that down. If, on the other hand, some of them address you as sir, and some as daddy, and some as something else, then maybe you don't need that in ink. Maybe that's something you'll simply craft in gasp, one-on-one -on -one intimate communication. Something without the contract between the two of you. Terrifying. So, again, that's another reason to just stick with the bare minimums, the things that you cannot live without when creating your formal structure. Because in case of poly, less is more. There's a lot of things I demand from the people under me that I do not demand from Kamiko and Tatsumi. And I know they're profoundly grateful for that. On the other hand, both of them had to get used to addressing me in specific fashion. That's it. It was the bare minimum that I wanted from them that they would recognize that I had authority in their lives. Anything else I can add individually, one-on-one, -on -one, as it suited me. I'm going to go a little bit of a tangent here to make it a little different from the maintenance thing. Another thing about polystructures, especially ones like Jack's, because Jack's is not just one person on top of a hierarchy. Jack's goal is to create a community, a community of pure dominance and their people, an order, not just a household, but a collection of households. It is a noble goal. Early on, the estate formed, and we attempted to do exactly that. We attempted to unite my house, Sir C's house, and Ken Soulhunter's house into one smoothly functioning, unified whole. Not nearly as easy as it seems at the beginning and not for any of the reasons that we thought about. Can any of you guess what some of the problems you would expect to happen in that situation? Who do you take orders from? That was our first question and the first thing we hammered out. Oddly enough, as weird as it sounds, I could say that's the one thing we never had any problems with, but it was the one we were most worried about. We spent days sitting around brainstorming, trying to figure out exactly how it was supposed to work because we thought that would be the single biggest problem. As it turned out, whether it's a unique ability of the three people involved or just the right chemistry or just enough forethought, it never seemed that either that any two of us had a problem with stepping back and letting one of us take charge in different circumstances there was a great deal of shared respect. So your key here is you're not going to be able to create a polystructure with more than one dominant unless there is a genuine and profound respect between them. I am not talking about respect like 
well, I wouldn't spit on your shoes, or I say God bless you when you sneeze. I'm talking about a genuine and deep abiding regard for each other's ability. You have to be able to look at each other and go, that person is a dominant, that person is my peer, that person is someone I can learn from. Because if you're too busy preening or going, I've got nothing I can learn from this guy, you're immediately going to, by default, start putting your own priorities ahead of theirs in every situation. And if you are in a shared order, in a shared authority structure, every situation is not yours to do that with. So the second question was, where do the situations change? How do we make this work? And so what we did was we came up with the idea of house rules. And whenever we would invite anybody over for anything that wasn't in a neutral space, we had neutral space rules, which was basically very casual. You know, we'd meet at Hellfire. Hellfire was not our place. Hellfire was Lenny's place. And no one of us ran Hellfire. We would just rope off our space and have a good time. And the flow of Hellfire was such that in general, some people would be up and playing and some people would be sitting down. And if someone was available, you could call on them to do things. And if they were tied up getting hurt, well, you couldn't call on them to do things. But that was basically it. So the real question is, if I'm over at Sir C's house, Whose house rules are we following? If Sir C and I are with Ken, and Ken invited us on a road trip, whose house rules are we following? That was, in fact, the default. The extender of the invitation would dictate the house rules. And we thought that would clear it up, and it didn't. It didn't because of expectations. The best example I can think of was one that went on for weeks before we could figure out the problem. The person in my service at that time was named Zoe, and Zoe was a workhorse, very, very service-oriented. And we would go over to Ken's house for a weekend and hang out, and she'd spend a lot of her time in the kitchen working, helping out, helping get dinner, helping attend to people. And then at another point, Ken and Kimmy, or Ken and Tats, or all three, or, or Sir and her boy, would come to my house, and Zoe would do the same thing. And eventually, we began to notice some discontents. I began to notice that she was unhappy every time these people visited. Now, these people are very important to me, and I like to see them a lot, and I didn't like the fact that someone under me was unhappy, because that meant there was work attached there was unpleasantness attached, and I couldn't just tell her, don't be unhappy, because that doesn't work. So I had to figure out what the problem was. And the problem was, she was extending the expectations of my house in visits to their house, and expected that my standards would prevail here. But it was a little trickier than that. My standards said, okay, I've got a servant, this servant should do everything possible to keep my host from having to do anything and to keep my host's servants from having to do anything. Should contribute, should be an active member of the household staff. Ken's view was, my servant should be right here next to me so that I am not imposing on the household staff. 
So what Zoe saw was she'd go to a house and work her guts out, and then they'd come over and they'd sit down. And this fermented discontent. And it took us a while to figure out the problem was in the expectations that we'd set up in the people beneath us, not the rules that we laid out on paper. It was just a dynamic we hadn't anticipated at all until we saw it illustrated. And the illustrated point there is there are always going to be undercurrents and things that the superiors don't see. There is shit going on below stairs that in general, they tend to be more than happy not bothering us with, um, or we certainly tend to discourage them from bothering us with, that is going to need attention eventually. And the earlier you can find it and spot it, the better. It took us a while to figure out what to do about that. What I did was, when we went over to Ken's house, I kept Zoe by my side, and instead we simply functioned under Soul Hunter rules. Zoe, Zoe's contribution to that household was not making me singular a burden by being there to attend to me instead of being in the kitchen helping out. It was just a matter of understanding the different priorities and different dynamics and every house is going to have different priorities, and priorities don't often get written into rule sets. Because more often than not, you don't think about them. You simply have them. And it's only when you're working closely with other people you find out they don't share them. Which is a loose lead-in to the next idea. If you don't think about what your priorities are, you're in trouble. The hardest question... I ever had to ask myself while actually trying to compose a working rule set was, what do I want? I mean, it sounds easy at first, but I found there was an awful lot of empty space on the page. I mean, other than snappy one-word answers like compliance, which is really no answer at all. I mean, how many of you do you think could write down on the back of this page, what you want, and have it covered now. There's a lot of gray area. You've been listening to Episode 8, Creating a Structure by Flag, Part 1, recorded live during a meeting in New York City. Please join us again at powerinpractice.com for the second part of Creating a Structure by Flag. You've been listening to Power in Practice, www.powerinpractice.com.